0: Hello, everyone. This is Michelle McKenzie, and welcome to another episode of the WTF Podcast, where we discuss the challenges faced by Black entrepreneurs in the U.S. and globally, particularly women, to address funding, uh, access to funding, to grow or scale an innovative idea and demystify entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. This episode is one in a series of episodes that will focus on women in the entrepreneurial ecosystems in agriculture and agribusiness, and the additional challenges that gender might play in women's access to funding to grow their businesses. Women lead approximately one third of small and medium-sized enterprises in emerging markets. However, these women are disproportionately underserved, receive less favorable financing terms, and face limited access to markets, market information, and digital technology. These challenges have only been compounded during the global COVID-19 pandemic, the impacts of which are likely to reverberate for some time. My guest today is Hadija Jibiri, the founder and managing director of Jibri Business Solutions and its Eat Fresh brand. Eat Fresh is a horticultural company in Tanzania that specializes in growing vegetables for both local and international markets. Currently. Eat Fresh exports to countries like Ireland and United Kingdom and looking to expand into other markets. Hadija, welcome to the WTF podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's a great honor for me to join you today. Uh,
0: it's a great pleasure having you. So let's, let's get into it. What problem are you solving with Eat Fresh and how did you get started?
1: Oh, thank you so much for the question. I always get to be asked the same question, like how did it start? Why agriculture for the sectors? Uh, For me, I wouldn't say I I thought a day will come and I will end up uh, doing something which relates to agriculture. And the reason why I never thought of it is because I'm from Tanzania where agriculture is dominated by smallholder farmers and majority of them being women living in rural areas, actually looking at them and their lifestyle, a young person wouldn't think of making farming a career. And uh, I have never seen my father or my mother going to the farm or doing anything relating, uh, related to agriculture. So mm-hmm. I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I never thought it will be in, in agriculture sector. How it started, Uh, 2013, I was watching a TV program. I saw the host showcasing stories of successful horticultural entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. It kind of captured my attention. I could see the way they were explaining the numbers they're making. And uh, being a young person with a desire to become a billionaire, I say, Oh, I love
0: can, it. A billionaire <laughs> with a B.
1: Go ahead, girl. Yes. So I said I can actually learn more about it. So I started visiting people's farms, getting to know what they're doing. But I learned a lot about it. And I made a decision to, to start my own farm, uh, a very small farm. That's how it started. So you were and, attracted to the
0: business potential that you saw. Yes. So why, why, why? So go back to the program that you saw. Why isn't more of this translating to more young people to see agriculture as an attractive option? Considering I know the barriers, it's hard, access to finance is difficult. A lot of it is, you know, sometimes weather-based and all the access to inputs, all of these challenges. You, did you have a sense of what the challenges would be? Or did you just see the opportunity for this to be a profitable business venture and jump in?
1: I I just saw opportunities at that time. I admit I, I did not imagine the challenges which I faced later in business. And it's good that I only saw opportunities. Maybe if I knew all these challenges... Maybe I wouldn't have started. I would have gone to, to another sector. So for me, it was, I saw opportunities to make money and I went for it. I like
0: it. She saw opportunities and she went for it. Um, what role does agri-food companies like Jibri or Eat Fresh play in food security and food market systems development in Africa?
1: Uh, maybe uh, if I can set a content. Context uh, globally, we have more than 200 million people going to bed without food. But also, if you look at Africa, our uh, food import bill is 43 billion billion dollars annually. And at the same time, if you look at the other side of production potential, Africa has more than 60 percent of arable land, which is fit for production of food and uh, if I narrow it down to Tanzania where I am, we have more than 44 million hectares of land. We can actually use this to uh, cultivate food. And um, also Africa is is, is one of the continents which is still struggling with the uh, nutrition issues. Malnutrition is, is very common in Africa as much as we have that potential to produce food. So I look at companies like Gibri, which is my company's uh, players in, in making sure we're utilizing the potential which is here, but uh, we, are, we, are, we are also uh, taking part on solving nutrition challenges.
0: So tell us a little bit of, more about that around the role you're playing in solving nutrition issues or nutrition challenges?
1: Yeah, so uh, as you introduced me, Jibri is a horticultural company, which is based in Tanzania. We are in southern part of the country and we are into production value addition as well as marketing horticultural produce in the domestic market and export markets. So looking at the domestic market, we are in uh, three value chains. We are doing avocados, we're doing beans, but also we are in banana. And what we have been doing is, uh, okay, we are producing like 30% ourselves, but the rest comes from smallholder farmers. And we are not just buying from them, but also we are encouraging them to consume these fruits and vegetables. They are growing and selling to to our company. Uh, When we look at what we are are exporting, unfortunately not everything they're producing uh, meet global standards, you know, we are we're exporting to European countries. So most of the time we are running different uh, campaigns and programs to make sure they are also consuming what we are producing. But uh, our company is, is making sure uh, Tanzanian uh, market has fruits and vegetables. And I would say that's the key role we, we are playing on making sure people are getting nutritious uh, food in, in, in Tanzania that it's
0: available. And then is there any sort of sensitization or things that you do around consumption of um, more nutrient rich foods, the importance of it? Because I'm assuming that even if it's there, there might be some issues with consumption as well, why you're encouraging the farmers to not just produce nutrient rich foods, but also to consume it.
1: Jibri has been working with development partners, most of the time we design projects, we, we get funding from development partners, and most of those projects are not only into production but also uh, have different sensitization campaigns to make sure people are eating nutri- uh, nutritious food, so we are, we are also doing that.
0: Wonderful. How important is access to funding in helping companies like yours play a significant role in, as we just talked about, providing nutritious and high-quality fruits and vegetables?
1: Funding is, I would say it's the blood of it all. It's the blood of it all. I mean, if you want to go into uh, agriculture today, Uh, There is no way you can do it without funding. There is no way you can do it without funding. I'll give a very simple example. When I was starting, I thought I can just have my small farm and grow vegetables and sell and make money. But unfortunately, African uh, agriculture, the value chain is not so well developed. At a certain point, you will find yourself being required to be at every part of the value chain. So, for example, if you want to export today, unlike what is happening in in developed countries, you can actually go and get uh, a facility which has cold storage, uh, uh, cold rooms, for example, and you can rent it out to put your vegetables and fruits for a while. But in in a place where I am, if you want to go into export, actually, you need to produce. You need to make sure you are uh, getting uh, the certifications yourself. Uh, maybe training farmers yourself, you need to invest in, in cold infrastructures yourself, you need to invest in looking for markets. So all those activities along the value chain requires resources. And uh, as I said, uh, funding is the blood of it all. If you want to do it, whether for domestic consumption or you are, you're considering exporting to other countries, there is no way you, you'll be able to do that without fund funding.
0: So because this podcast is called, where's the funding, where, where did you find funding? Where's the funding? (laughs) Where'd you find it? You mentioned, um, development institutions. So where, what other types of financial partners, um, what other sources of funding have you tapped into, um, walk me through your funding journey.
1: Mm, uh yeah, so I started with the literal savings I had. Actually I I came out of university in 2012. 20, 20, uh, uh twelve. 2013 right away I saw opportunity in agriculture you can imagine a very young person at that time had no collaterals so I said with the little that I have at least I can start and maybe after a year I'll be able to go to the bank and and get financing to be able to expand my business that you was did, my you didn't
0: know very much how banks in Africa work at that time know. did you? I,
1: I, <laughs> I was very optimistic I didn't know I knew there is Money (laughs) And I thought I could be able to access the money which is there. But unfortunately, when I started, I was hit with the reality. I remember I visited many banks. Unfortunately, I was told what you're doing is very risky. It's agriculture, but also you don't qualify. You don't have uh, the necessary qualifications which can make us give you funding. And that was basically, um, they were looking at my numbers. At the same time, I didn't have collaterals. So it was very hard for them to, to give me money. I struggled for like two years, I would say, until when I realized what I am doing is having positive impact to the community. And someone advised me like, you can give a trial, uh, try to approach development partners and get to see if they're interested because you are creating employment opportunities uh, to the community around you, but also you are, you are supporting smallholder farmers. And maybe just a little bit what we have been doing with smallholder farmers, we have been training them, we have been giving them agronomic support just to make sure they're able to grow uh, vegetables and fruits which can meet market standards So I started writing proposals, I can tell you. I mean, I wrote many proposals at that time, many. I didn't even know how to put up a good proposal for a donor to to, to fund a proposal. But eventually uh, I managed to uh, reach to USAID. They were interested. They had a program to support youth in agriculture. And they gave me like 100,000 USD. And that was a lot of money. I mean, I never even dreamed that I could have such amount of money at that time. So t- tell me, so when you had initially approached
0: the bank, what was the figure you had in mind when you were looking for commercial financing from the bank?
1: I was looking, Okay, I was thinking of a very, I would say my, my thinking was quite small. I was just looking for 50,000 USD and I thought it was a lot. But uh, of course, com- if you look at what we are doing now, th- that is, I wouldn't say it's not money, but uh, that's not what. It's I would, a drop in the bucket compared yeah. to the budget you yes, need to take yes. on the challenges yeah. that you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So I got support from USAID. I implemented the project, which I wrote. They were happy about it, but they always say you need one person to open the first door. Then the uh, other doors will just open. Uh, you after need evening, that first. You
0: need that first mover and that first believer and that first yeah. funder. The problem yeah. sometimes is people, lots of people don't want to be first, especially on the funding side of things, right? They're like, who who, who, who else is interested? Who have you gotten money from before, right? And so what I think yeah. once you get over that hurdle, it can get a little bit um, easier, especially if that that investor or funder has a certain... Brand or reputation they're known and known yeah. for. And then it, it helps to hope, open the doors. Because I'm sure if you go to somebody else and, like, okay, I've received funding from USAID, there's a certain level of confidence um, that yeah. might come with that.
1: And I was getting that question most of the time like, is there anyone who has given you money? And my answer was no, 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 no one actually will be the first one. And you would just see them getting out of the door. <laughs> Yeah, so after USAID, when we implemented the project, then now many more partners were coming. Actually, it was not me uh, going to them. Now it was them coming with the interest to to support what we we were doing at that time. So I got uh, MEDA, it was a Canadian organization. I I have worked with them for like four years. I mean, I got like three grants from them Uh, whenever they So an opportunity, we were the first company, they they would approach and say there is this amount of money, are you sure? Do you think you can utilize this? So after MEDA, and now I I became a bit good on writing proposals. So it was easy if I send a proposal out there, I'm quite sure maybe if I send 10 proposals, maybe I'll get eight no's and at least two yes. You see, so from uh, developing- I want, I want to... you to pause
0: for a second, Hadija, um, for the listeners to, to understand um, the process. Not every application that you write is going to get funded. She said for every 10, she might get two. So you have to understand the numbers, Right. So it's not a one-for-one thing. You write one proposal and you're (laughs) like, oh, they didn't pick me, so I'm going to give up. No, persistence is key and you have to keep writing and you have to put requests out there in different places and in volume because for every 10, you might only get one or two. So you wanna make sure that you're casting your net wide and that you're writing multiple proposals and not to be defeated. Um with the with the rejections. So before we get into the rest of your story, do you want to talk a little bit about dealing with rejection?
1: Rejection is painful. I'm telling you, it was hard for me to handle rejection when I started. When, whenever I got unfortunately, you know, their emails will always start with unfortunately, we loved your proposal, but unfortunately, we received the better proposals than yours. Uh, It's understanding things won't be the way you expect most of the time. As much as I would want to get yeses, but things do not work in such a way. Handling rejection is the number one skill which will help an entrepreneur. You are going to be rejected by your customers. You are going to be rejected by funders. You are going to be rejected by partners. Maybe partners you didn't even expect they will reject you. So. You need to, to get to a level where you have a hardy skin, I would say, to the extent when you put something out there, just do your best to make sure if it's a proposal, it's a really good proposal. If you get yes, it's fine. If you get no, then it, maybe it was not the right time as much as your proposal was good, or maybe the opportunity was not for you and not giving up like I got 10 no's and I'm not going to write the next proposal again. I get no's every single day. If you get to check my email uh, inbox, you will testify to that. I get no's. People think Hadija is favored and she get lots of yeses. But maybe for every 20 proposals I put out there, no's are like 16 or 17 sometimes and only three yeses. So no is, is necessary for you to grow. Yes, I
0: love this, Hadidah. Um, you have to, because a part of this podcast is about demystifying the fog around funding and entrepreneurship and no's comes with the territory. It's, it's a part of doing business and it's the ones who are not as faced. Cause it's not like it doesn't bother you. It does, but you, yeah. you don't allow it to deter you. You're like, yeah. okay,
1: time, it's a numbers game. It's a numbers game. And most of the time when I get a no, I will write an email like, where do you think I did not meet your expectations? How can I improve? How can I write a better proposal next time? Where do you think I need to improve? And most of the time, you'll be surprised. They will get back to you and tell you maybe you didn't tell uh, how you're going to impact women our interest was specifically on women and and youth for example or your business was uh, not innovative enough we wanted technology aspect we wanted to see some aspect of technology uh, on your proposal so getting a no it really hurts you don't get used to it as many as much as you, you might get hundreds of them but Uh, It's understanding no's will always be there as much as you'll also get yeses. But whenever you get a no, can you go back and tell them why I got this no in a very positive way? And they will give you feedback and you can use that feedback as a base to improve the next time you you go and approach someone else. And there are a couple of things there because
0: I've worked on the, the foundation side giving grants. So I've seen lots of applications. And part of it, when you said, you know, maybe they were looking for something else, maybe they wanted to see uh, technology and your application didn't include that or how you use technology in your business. And it's a key point in that always make sure for those who are listening, when you're applying for grants, that you're making sure that what the donor is looking for aligns with what you actually do. Because if it's out of scope, then you would have put in all that time and energy just to be rejected. And it might not necessarily be that your application wasn't good. You're not good. Your business is not good. It's just that it wasn't the right fit because that's not what they were looking for. And so just realize that um, it's not personal sometimes and you just have to make sure that you are responding very closely to the request for proposal in terms of what they're looking for and become very good at showing how you are problem solving. So it's not just about your need for funding, but it's like, what problem are you solving? And is that donor looking to solve that same problem? And how do you help them to solve that problem?
1: Very true. Very true. And uh, just take a look at eligibility criterias. They always say what they want. They always say what they want
0: and they usually mean it too. I, you know, I, I've, I've seen things oftentimes, you know, people get knocked out of the running for just simply not following instructions, not reading the eligibility requirements and things of that nature. So you got good with grants and you got good at fundraising.
1: Yeah. So I can say I got good at it because, uh, 20 on year 2019, I managed to get uh, funding from the Netherlands government, which was uh, over a million dollars. And with that particular funding, then we, we attracted investors. So now, you know, initially, as much as I wanted to bring in an investor, but I could not uh, justify with numbers, most of the people they would come I would present my business they would look at my numbers especially those investors who are not looking at the impact they were not driven by emotions for them they just wanted to see if your numbers tick to decide whether they want to partner with you or they don't want to partner with you so after getting this one uh, I would call it a big grant for me then uh, I I had to fly to Berlin and no, sorry, it was Paris. And I met with an investor. He was very uh, positive. He saw the numbers, the numbers kind of captured his attention. He made a decision. He wants to work with my organization. So we took time, of course, he had to do his due diligence. He had to understand how things work. Unfortunately, COVID uh, started as well. So things, we had to put things on hold for a while. But uh, later on, as much as he decided, uh, he, most of his businesses were affected by COVID. So he decided to pull out of the deal, but immediately after him pulling out, we got other investors. who are also interested. They want to invest in African agriculture and particularly they wanted to, to join Jibri uh, efforts. So now we have investors from the Netherlands. And at the same time, after getting that one big uh, funding from the Netherlands government, Uh, The banks as well, we have Tanzania Agricultural Development Bank, which uh, loved our business case and they came, they wanted to support our company, but also they wanted to support our smallholder farmers. So I would say things become much easier. Uh, for now it's more of, uh, fighting to get the best deal rather than trying to convince someone to even listen to you initially it was how do I get people to listen to me when I'm presenting uh, my business case but now it's more of how can I get the best deal for 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 Gibri, for Eat Fresh okay so so talk to me
0: about when you've started like trying to figure out how to present like why me why you should invest in me what was your strategy for that how <laughs> did potential. you mm-hmm.
1: uh, what did me, you focus on uh, uh, for me it's of course when it's a uh, equity investor most of the time they're looking at the numbers like if i put in my 1 dollar how much am i getting out of it how long will it take me to be able to get uh, my investment back back so for me it was more of showing them the potential which is in in Tanzania, in in Africa, when it comes to agriculture, the unrealized potential, which is there, but also justifying with numbers, how much they can make if they put their dollars in, in gibberish. Most of the time it was that, though I remember when I met my very first investor, a person who showed interest in Paris, he also wanted to see if he can trust me. For him, numbers mattered, but as well, he wanted to get a feeling like, can I trust Hadija? And he said it, uh, he was very open. He said, I want to meet you. I want to shake hands with you and get to see whether I can trust you or I cannot trust you. So also investors, will, will, as much as you, you can have a very good business, but for them, they're looking for a person. They can have a feel like I can trust this person. I can put my money here because most of the time you don't know what will happen to, to tomorrow morning. Yes. So trust is very important. and and trust works both ways, right?
0: Because it's not enough for him to trust you. You have to trust him too, because you're, you're letting him into your business. You're pretty much getting into a marriage, a business marriage. And so you need trust on, on both ends. So it's not just one way. So for other entrepreneurs, it's not just, you know, you are courting the investor as much as they're courting you. And so trust needs to be on, on both sides.
1: It's it's very true actually, and most of the time, you know, we, we just let them uh, do their due diligence, but we don't do the due diligence on them. Unfortunately, most of invest. I mean, when you bring in an investor, it's like you're bringing in he's just a partner and you get to understand like will I be able to uh, survive with this particular partner are we having the same values are we having the same vision do we want it does this person want this business to go the direction I want it to go and if you see like there is a place where we don't meet it's better to let it go and look for someone else because you can bring in someone who can transform your business, but it will leave you miserably for the rest of your life. And maybe it can even kill the business. So as much as they're doing due diligence to decide whether they can invest in you, you also need to do the same way as an entrepreneur and decide whether you can have him or her as a partner or you should look for someone else. No, absolutely.
0: Right fit is important. And the opposite could be true. You could find someone who could come in and transform the business amazingly into something that, you know, help you to create something that you didn't even have a vision for and help you guide that process. But you have to get to that level of comfort and trust and that values alignment is is very important um, when taking on investors. So, Pivoting back to finding the best deal. uh, What what does that
1: look like for you? Mm. We have a vision (laughs) as a company. We we know where where we are going. I mean, and the vision is very clear. We communicate it to our employees. We communicate it to our partners. When it comes to looking for the best deal, I would not want to bring in someone today and tomorrow Gibri is no longer there. Uh, for me, Jibri is here to service smallholder farmers, we want to make sure smallholder farmers are able to access market for their produce, and if we get someone who can align to that, so whatever investment we are putting in, it should be along supporting smallholder farmers in Tanzania, as much as we are also making money by supporting them, it's all you give you get as well, so For me, the best deal is something which can take me to the vision where uh, we have already articulated as a company.
0: Tell me a little bit more about, you've mentioned the smallholder farmers and they're a key part of your business. How many of them are in your supply chain that you support?
1: Currently, we have 3,000 smallholder farmers.
0: 3,000. What's the gender breakdown of of that 3,000?
1: So as I said, I don't know if it's it's by a coincidence that Tanzanian agriculture is dominated by women smallholder farmers. So majority of them, like eighty percent of them, are women smallholder farmers, and we are working with them in, in different uh, value chains. For example, we have farmers in Kilimanjaro and farmers in Bea over 600 now and what we are doing we're just giving them market for their bananas we are ripening these bananas and distribute to vendors who are also women vendors in 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 in, in tanzania we distribute in ringa we distribute in, in Dar as well as a mega city in tanzania but also some of them are under contractual basis we sign contracts with them in a way uh, we support them to be able to grow meeting export standards, we give them agronomic support, then we buy their produce, we add value and export to European markets. So currently, we are having a total of 3,000 smallholder farmers.
0: So just for listeners to understand, Jibri um, or Eat Fresh is market, it's providing a market for smallholders to be able to offload their production. Um, and to for it to even go further than just the local market so the more so right now they'll be able to produce more if they have an off taker in you right Um, because I'm sure the ones that you're working with now you're helping them to grow to European standards but maybe also to to increase productivity because you have demands in terms of the quantities of production that you need to fill and without a company like yours playing that role that it plays in the value chain, um, smallholders who you work with might not have the same type of opportunity to be able to sell their product that they do with you in the market. Can you talk to me a little about the, so the majority of your, your producers in your supply chain are women, the impact of women being able to earn a decent um, living from their production and the ripple effects of that
1: oh men, <laughs> women are actually they they're the ones in 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 our context uh, in Tanzania they're the ones taking care of their families if you support a, a, a woman to increase the, the income uh, uh, be sure the kids will go to school but also, You're even helping them to avoid gender-based violences. Uh, Unfortunately, if a woman does not have income, it's very hard for them to participate in family decision-making in Africa. So uh, what we are doing is, is really supporting them to be able to speak for themselves, to be able to support their families, to be able to... I mean, to have that freedom as women. And that's the reason why, not because I'm a woman, I am doing this, but you can see the the, the impact you are creating to the community around.
0: There's a business case for it.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) So
0: the investors that you're talking about, are there more impact investors who care about um, other aspects of the bottom line beyond just the numbers? In terms of people impact?
1: So far, I would say 95% of our partners, they care about the impact we are having to the community around.
0: Wonderful. Oftentimes, when you look at who is getting more benefit and profit from agriculture, it's usually not the women. They're sort of at the smallholder level doing the production. So what does this mean for you as a young woman leading an agribusiness in Africa, that is supplying fruits and vegetables to a global market? And what does it say about changing narratives about quality and, and, and what can come um, from, from African businesses exporting into a, an external market?
1: Yeah, so uh, maybe to start with, with your very first question. Uh, unfortunately, we are exporting non-traditional vegetables we had to export what is needed by the market, but some of our future plans includes to, I mean, to take what is in Africa out there for others to experience. So I wish one day I can export yams, some of our leafy vegetables here, which are unique and you can only find them in Africa. And I think I'll be a proud African, but, For now, we are exporting non-traditional vegetables, the likes of green beans, snow peas, sugar snaps. And unfortunately, most of these vegetables are not even consumed locally, but uh, our future plans will be to brand Africa out there as much as we are now branding Tanzania out there. So how do I feel being a a young woman, but also at the top of the value chain? What you said is, is very true. Uh, most of smallholder farmers are not benefited with what they're doing because they are at the bottom of the value chain. You'll be surprised someone can grow, let's say, tomatoes and get to sell uh, hot tomatoes for a $1 a kilo or uh, half a dollar a kilo. And a person who is buying those tomatoes, let's say it's a broker and be able to take it to the market will get twice or three times what the farmer is getting. So being, being, being at the top of the value chain and being able to benefit is how other business... People are benefited. I think it's setting a very good example to other women out there, especially young people, that it's not necessary we remain at the bottom of the value chain, but we can look at other opportunities along the value chain and go into those opportunities and make more money, and also be able to uh, pull other women who are at the bottom of the value chain. Um, yeah, I would say so, and. Uh, of course, you spoke a little bit of uh, standards. I don't know if I got you uh, correct. You did. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, the market does not care whether your produce are coming from Africa or they're being produced by young, a young person. The market just want quality, good quality, really good quality because uh, I will give you a very good example. When it comes to Europe, it's not only produce from Tanzania. Other European countries would want to take their produce to UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to avocado, for example, recently we, we went we 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 just got ourselves into avocado value chain. There are places like Peru, they have been into the avocado production for quite time. some time. And when you go into uh, that particular market, you're competing with the giants, and they don't care whether you are from Africa for you to uh, supply substandard products, they just want good quality. And the second thing which the market want is your competitiveness in terms of prices, and also as well, that does not care where you're coming, or your scale of production. So... Uh, To be able to export, of course, whether you're a smallholder farmer or you're a medium uh, enterprise, you should be able to meet the market standards. Yeah, you kind of got
0: into what my next question was going to be, which is in addition to funding, there are many barriers to exporting food-based products from Africa to external markets, such as market entry, branding, packaging, certification, placement, distribution, etc., How did you overcome some of these barriers to grow and scale into these export markets?
1: Uh, Maybe I can start with the accessing, uh, uh, I mean, European market itself. Uh, With with today's world of digital technology, for me, I didn't look at it as a barrier. I always tell people we Googled our way to Europe. For me, I just (laughs) needed to find a a marketing company, an online marketing company, uh, which can help me to get my first customer. The major challenge was actually on meeting the standards which our customers wanted. Getting to the market was easy, but uh, being able to supply to that particular market, I admit it was not easy because now we were at this point where we were told like, you need to have certifications, things like, Global Gap Certificate, you need CIMETA, This is a social compliance, and, and there are costs to those they certifications. Are mm-hmm. They are very costful, but also they demand you to put certain infrastructures at which your come, which farm, come with costs, which come with <laughs> costs as well. And yeah. as I said, we are working with smallholder farmers. They don't even have an understanding of these standards, so it mm-hmm. also. I required our company to be able to train them to get to these standards. And all that involves uh, uh, money. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's why I'm saying that was a bit uh, um, challenging uh, uh, thing, especially when I wanted to start exporting. But uh, I'm grateful we managed to do that. It took us time to get some of the certificates. We just needed to fulfill minimum requirements with a promise to our customers uh, uh, just give us time, eventually we'll be able to get to all these other standards you want. And I'm happy most of our customers, were patient enough to, to wait for us to get to the level where we can even have the social compliance certificates. What were some
0: of the major challenges working with the producers on the quality quality side of things, getting them to be able to understand that, hey, this might be how you're used to doing things, but the market that we're trying to get your products into, this doesn't work. How did you get them to start complying and to adapt um, what you were teaching them into their production and handling processes? I'm sure it wasn't that very easy process.
1: (laughs) Well, it's it's still not easy process. It it is still not an easy thing to do. We have our own way of doing things. I mean, uh, most of our African markets do not care that much about quality. Most of the time we care about quantity. I just want to buy uh, in a cheaper price, but I want to to get more than what I, I am paying for. So getting smallholder farmers to understand, we actually supplying to a very, uh, I would call it a a complicated market. A discerning market. (laughs) (laughs) It was hard. It was hard. And I remember the first two years in business, we had high rejection levels. At times we had to reject some of produce, which were coming from our smallholder farmers, because We needed to set a standard, like if you're not able to supply a produce, which are of this standard, unfortunately, we cannot buy. And uh, those do you uh, offer do you offer premiums to your producers who? Oh, yes, we do that. We do that in terms of farmers who reach high level of productivity, but also farmers who will have minimal rejection levels, we do offer premium to them. And that was also motivating other farmers to try as much as they can to get to to those levels as well. So it has not been easy. And that's the part where I've also been working with different partners. Some of them have been supporting us in terms of uh, capacitating our, our farmers and uh for example we we have been working with farmer to farmer it's a u.s based organization I'm familiar and Yes. they have been sending their volunteers to come and train our farmers just to make sure they are meeting the global standards which you want them to meet so it was not easy it's still not easy when you enroll a new farmer it will take you like a year for that particular farmer to understand the standard you're looking for. But eventually if they get to understand and they see the profit, which comes with it. They definitely provide you with good quality. Have you been able to break down yet the cost of onboarding
0: a new farmer? You know, like sometimes people can, uh, businesses can break down the cost of onboarding a new customer, like in terms of what you have to spend on ads and, and and things of that nature. When you onboard a new farmer, how how much does that cost you?
1: We have been able to do that. And it's not only a farmer, even our customers, how much it, it costs mm-hmm. us to get a new customer. You'll be surprised. For example, so far, we only have five customers in Europe. We are only servicing five distributors. But how much does it cost me to get that one particular a person to trust in Jibri, it involves traveling to exhibitions, you need to go to Europe as many times as possible, as mm-hmm. much as now things are being done virtually. So we, we have established those costs, including the cost of getting a new farmer. And for us, most of the time, our cost goes to training and offering agronomic support to these farmers. Uh, that's where our cost goes. But in one way or another, we also costing it on the price of, of their produce, it's business. So actually we need to find where we'll get that money. If we don't have a partner who is supporting us on that particular area, because it's a business, mm-hmm. then it, we should cost it also on, 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 on produce uh, price. Okay.
0: Uh, so you started out by telling us how it started.
1: Tell me where you're going. Expansion. <laughs> For now it's a expansion in terms of uh, geographical uh, coverage area. Currently we are in five regions in Tanzania, but to, by 2025 we are hoping to be in 10 regions. All these regions we want to go to have huge potential in terms of production but as well, we are looking forward to increase our investment in cold storage infrastructures. We have our facilities in two regions and we're using these facilities as collection points for produce which are coming from smallholder farmers. So we will increase investment of that particular area. For example, this year alone, we will invest uh, uh, on infrastructures like 900 million, uh, uh, I mean, uh, $900,000. And next year, we are hoping to increase the investment up to 2025, we will keep on doing that. But also, uh, we are not only looking at Tanzania alone, we have been getting uh, people interested to do, I mean, for us to be able to go and do what we are doing in other African countries. So maybe in the next five years, we might consider going to one more country and uh, get to see what will happen there so far as it's more of expansion and in terms of market as well we are only into European countries but now we want also to tap into Asian market so we have started looking for customers there as well and increasing our, our products in, in our portfolio now we have uh, the five value chains but we'll add more value chains as we go forward So how much would you say that you have
0: raised, whether from DFIs or investors, since you started? Uh, Over $4 million. Over $4 million. And how much are you looking to raise as you move into these expansion plans?
1: $10 million for now. That's what we want.
0: If there are investors listening, what do you want them to to know?
1: (laughs) Uh, African agriculture is, is, I mean, uh, it's, it's the way to go. It's the way to go. The potential is there when it comes to production, the market is there. Uh, there is no way we can stop eating and Africa is, is where everyone is looking at when it comes to, to where we can produce. There is land here. There is good weather. So let's join hands. Let's do it together.
0: What should they know about you as a CEO? Because they're betting on you as much as they're betting on the business. Tell them how. Tell them how you're you're gonna help them win.
1: Oh yeah. Uh, so uh, people have uh, uh, put their trust on me, and I've not failed them at all. When I say it's black, it's always black. When I say it's white, it's always white. I have good relationship when it comes to different partners, not forgetting the government itself. You cannot operate in Tanzania if you don't have good uh, relationship with Tanzanian government. Mm -hmm. So if you partner with Gibri, you are, you need to be assured it's something which will definitely work. And remembering the fact we are working with smallholder farmers. So it's not only uh, supporting jibri to go, grow, but also supporting the women we are, we are working with to be able to grow.
0: Well, you've heard it, folks. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the WTF podcast. And if there are any investors out there, how can they find you?
1: Our website, uh, www.eatfresh.co.tz. But also, I use my name Hadija Jabiri on all of the uh, social media platforms I am in Twitter, LinkedIn. I am there. It's H A D I J A Jabiri, and uh, Instagram and Facebook. But also, my mobile number is plus 255 756 99118. I'm available 24 7. She
0: gave out the numbers, guys. She's available.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Adija, thank
0: you so much for coming on the WTF podcast. And to our listeners, if you'd like to be a guest or sponsor the podcast, please contact us at where's the funding at gmail.com. Make sure that you're listening. We're available on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast and help us grow our audience, subscribe, stream, download, rate, review, all that good stuff. And make sure you follow the podcast on Instagram at Worth and Podcast. And follow me, your host, Michelle McK- J. McKenzie on LinkedIn. See you for the next episode.